some of us find ourselves on center stage, making our living by releasing the trumpet's golden tones into the air, captivating audiences worldwide. Others among us may be more prone to engage in spirited discussions about its intricacies, its legendary players, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped its journey. But no matter our background or ability, Trumpet Dynamics is our harmonious sanctuary, a podcast that tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. A haven where we explore every facet of this wondrous instrument, delving deep into the minds and hearts of those whose energy breathes life into a simple piece of plumbing. Join us as we venture through time, tracing the trumpet's storied origins from its humble beginnings to its modern grandeur in orchestras, jazz clubs, recording studios, university halls, and beyond. Through insightful interviews and captivating anecdotes, We'll hear the wisdom and experiences of virtuosos, teachers, historians and enthusiasts alike. And now, let the symphony of trumpet dynamics commence with our founder and host, James D. Newcomb. We have the great Chris Bodie on the show today. Really excited about this one to both share it with you, and I was really excited to, uh, just uh, on a whim, I checked out his website and happened to see that he was going to be in my neck of the woods, which these days is Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I actually met Chris in the summer of 2015. This was my very, very first days as a podcaster, and I was able to meet Chris via introduction from John Snell of the Other Side of the Bell podcast, who just hooked me up with his contact information, and just like this meeting that we had here in Virginia, the stars aligned that we were able to meet up in South Korea, of all places, a couple of Americans <laughs> having a podcast interview in South Korea. It's kind of weird, and it was actually really memorable for both of us. This interview that you're about to hear is not like a definitive explanation of Chris's philosophy, his approach to technique and pedagogy. It doesn't give his full history as a trumpeter. Uh, what I did was I just basically went onto Facebook groups and just said, hey, I'm interviewing Chris Bodie. What should I ask him? And a few people uh, responded with some really good questions. And that's that was basically the meat and potatoes of the interview. Um, if you do want to hear Chris's full story, I recommend that you listen to the Other Side of the Bell podcast. It's episode number 24. And sadly, and I'm, I don't mean this to take a swipe at anyone, but they have changed their website a little bit, so their podcasts are not available on the Bob Reeves website, but they are available on Spotify, uh, Apple, Google, pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. You just type in other side of the bell and and then type in Chris Bodie and you'll find it. They have a lot of really great interviews. I, I, I think it's one of the best trumpet podcasts out there. Not the best you're listening to, the best, but they're a pretty close second. I'll give them that. So let's just dive right into the interview with Chris. And if you're interested, I'm going to have some personal observations on Chris as a trumpeter, as a showman, as a performer. And um, if you if you want to hear what I have to say about it, then you're welcome to uh, stick it out to the very end and hear what I have to say. Otherwise, just enjoy this interview with Chris Bodie. It's a really good one. This is James Newcomb, and I'm here with Chris Bodie. This is like full circle for me because Chris was among my very first podcast interviews ever. Mm -hmm. I started in March of 2015 and I heard you on the other side of the bell podcast with John. John Bob, the, yeah, John. Yeah. The Bob Reeves podcast. Yeah. And he was very helpful in making a connection. And yeah. 
just a few months later, here we are, sitting at a hotel in South Korea, where I was stationed at the time. And here, that was eight years ago. Yeah. And here we are sitting down again. It's really cool. Time flies. A lot has happened in that eight years. Yes, and I've, I haven't improved one bit in interviewing. Just, <laughs> just to warn you. <laughs> and the food's worse today. Yeah. It was in your hotel, and then we had some dinner afterwards. Yeah. yeah. I have some questions. Just I just called Facebook for sure. questions from fellow trumpeters. Okay. But what really impresses me, watching you, it, because you're, you're very well-known... I guess we call you a pop star. Would you say that's a fair well, assessment? Hopefully. <laughs> okay. Popular. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But in every every promo video, every album cover, there's trumpet. We always see the trumpet. You're one of the last standard bearers because we used to have Harry James, Maynard Ferguson. They would front these nationally known bands. Mm-hmm. We don't have that very much anymore. You're like fronting a major band with the trumpet. I think right. that's really cool. Thank you. I, I certainly, as the years have ticked on, it's literally, we play a show and do we have the ability to be asked back? Mm. And that that has been the greatest anticipation or the greatest kind of achievement. Like people might say a Grammy or blah, 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 or, or successful records or something like that. But I think it's shrunk down to do people recognize the face with mm-hmm. the trumpet? That's right. why I have the trumpet in there. Because, you know, a lot of times... They don't, it's, it needs the trumpet to sell. So it differentiates you from other pop stars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I think when Diana Krall was coming up, maybe on her records, she wouldn't be sitting by the piano, but a lot of the stuff, people know her as the jazz pianist. That's when she first started to come up. And then she became involved in pop culture in, in our daily lives, so to speak. And the same thing could be said for a lot of different people in, over the course of time. Mm-hmm. But... That, that's why I, I had I had the trumpet and gives some identifiable I want to go see that trumpet player tonight in Morristown and and it and it shrinks down to that level rather than when I was signed to Columbia Records 20 years ago we think much more like across the country like how many records sold or how well did your radio play transfer in Chicago as opposed to opposed to San Francisco as opposed to New York and now it's just because people give their opinions and they blow up the promoter right after the show. Like so many of the shows we do, we are hired back by the promoter who's off stage and goes up to my manager and says, when can we book for next year? Okay. Or within a couple of months, they'll say, you're booked again for next year. We leave Palm Springs and boom, we're booked for two nights. Because it used to be radio people would go to the radio stations and then they get feedback from the radio stations and they report back to the record company and blah, 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 blah. Now people just go, I like the Chris Bodie show. I see he's coming to Atlanta. Go check him out. And it's all on Facebook and they get emails yeah, to yeah. The, the, the people that support this theater here tonight. They get emails to the promoter and say, we really like that Chris Bodie show. Okay. And that is all you focus on anymore. Whereas, whereas 20, whereas, oh, is that okay? Oh, that's okay. Whereas 20 years ago, you looked at some in a completely different thing, like almost like a marketing, yeah. like records to market, to radio, to market. But now, thankfully, we have a career enough to get us into a theater like this. And then it's up to us for probably the last six, seven, eight years to hold on to that audience. And that's my whole daily existence now, which is completely a, a shift from the way it used to be. Okay, so let's say 20 years ago, 
Who did you need to impress to succeed? People at the record company. People at the record company. Yeah. I mean, I, my former manager, Bobby Columbia, who did so many great things for me, got me a record deal on Columbia Records. And at the time, I had had some little bit of success with Verve Records, and then I switched to Columbia. But I could have just made some records and it would have sold 100,000 or at that time the record business was really good so maybe a couple hundred thousand or 150,000 or something like that and and we played the record company and and I don't mean played it in a bad way we ingratiated ourselves in particular to one gentleman Don Einer who was the president of Columbia Records and Bobby had a long relationship with him and went into him and on my when I fall in love record Don Einer sat there in the 50th floor of Sony Music and said you guys go make the record, do whatever you want. Don't worry about radio. Don't worry about anything. And when it's done, we'll have a glass of wine, listen to it, and that'll be it. And then he just went kaboom and pulled the lever. So whatever money we wanted for, whether it's getting on Oprah or traveling to Chicago to get on Oprah or, or the When I Fall in Love recording or the promotion or the photo shoot or whatever, he just went boom, done. But to get to that place where Don Iron goes, boom, Don, because he's not doing it to everyone at the record company. So you have to like spend a lot of time up at Columbia Records meeting the head of promotion and the, and the radio people. Now, there's hardly anyone left. Okay. Certainly at Columbia and the jazz in that kind of Columbia Records turned into Adele. Like it just, they, they just became the Adele record company at a certain point, like five years ago. And I, I recognized that and I parted ways. And now I'm super happy to be on an iconic Blue Note Records. And so our new record comes out in a week or two weeks, something like that. Uh, October 20th, three weeks, month. And and Mike's, it's now a, a n- another process of learning, but we're established. And so that's the good take. And so then everything shrinks down rather than trying to impress the head of promotion at Columbia Records so they can be on your wheelhouse. So when Oprah does want you to be on, they have the budget to to take my whole band out there and pay for it. It's very expensive. And yeah, <laughs> a lot of people don't know that. When when Oprah says, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, she's not paying for it. Somebody's the car company's <laughs> paying for it. It says advertising. So the same thing, when when and, and I'm super grateful that she loved my music. That's a given. But you got to get everyone out there, put them all up, pay for the rights to the licensing and all that stuff and the makeup and the blah, 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 and then flights back. It's when I had no gigs and no money, zero, zero broke. It was a big deal. And Columbia Records, Kim Jackworth, the publicist people and Fran DeFeo and all those lovely people there, they did that. And they, I was on their wheelhouse, but then they also had Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel and Prince on their wheelhouse too. We're moving in there, us over here. And thankfully it worked. Who's us? Like my, my team, my career. Yeah. Because in the big record companies, they look, they're looking for the biggest absolute bang for their buck and the quickest okay. bang for their buck. And a big pop label, their first thing on the wheelhouse on the 55th floor isn't a jazz trumpet player. And that's what made it unique. And that's what Bobby orchestrated and got us in there and forever grateful to Don Einer for that. Yeah. yeah. So 20 years ago, you're, you sink or swim on the judgment or the opinion of one person. Is that accurate? Uh, okay. So. You know, the, the floodgates don't open okay. for you to have an opinion placed on your music by a large swath of the population unless someone... A gatekeeper. 
gatekeeper with the okay. pockets at the record company to pull the boom. When my Italian record came out in 07, we had a full page ad in the New York Times. And that's expensive. Yes. and But it also, people see the guy with the trumpet and it registers in there that it's not whatever, a singer, Michael Bolton, or whatever. It's not a pop singer. It's the guy with the trumpet. Do I like his music? Do I not? I heard something I like. I'm going to go see it. It gets down to that sort of thing. And on many levels, Italia came out. And we did all the morning shows and Larry King and Bocelli guested with us on Larry King. And it was, we sold a ton of albums. And that's when the record business changed. Then everything is in a completely different place now. The way people consume music, yes. the way people, but what doesn't change <clears throat> is if I remember John Mayer and I signed to Columbia Records at the same time, and we would see each other different venues. We struck up a friendship. He's gigged with us. And I, I can't remember when it was exactly he said it, but he nailed it. He said, there's a garage door closing, and if you're lucky enough to have an audience, you get in underneath the garage. It's closing. You know, this thing called streaming or whatever is going to change the landscape of how we monetize music and the most important thing is gigging so he was saying like the model as you know it the door is closing yeah if you're lucky right. enough to have if you're lucky enough to be established yeah when this thing changes mm -hmm. you got a shot okay but it to like if i was trying to come up in the business now yeah boy i mean i get asked all the time what would you do like i have no idea <laughs> but like for young jazz musicians the scene is there a scene i don't and how that scene translates into a larger, like throwing a pebble in a, a still lake. How does that scene right. translate into something that would make a, a career? So you can, it's one thing to sell a ticket at the Monterey Jazz Festival. It's a whole other thing to sell a ticket in Columbus, Ohio on a Tuesday night. You know, like the jazz festivals are propped up. There's two a year. There's Montreal, there's Newport, and there's yeah. Monterey, something like that. You can't make your living with it. Yeah. And, the, and those, yeah, it's, those things are completely different. Yeah. My observation is that the, and based on what you've said thus far, is it, the niche, it opens the doors. Maybe some doors were closed to succeed in that paradigm. But in, in light of this, there are opportunities to succeed in a, very hyper specialized niche. And this is something that I talk about all the time with, with doing podcasts. Like, podcast is the new television. <laughs> it is. There's, it not, is. there's not going to be, but, I, don't, I don't think in 10 years there's going to be a, I don't think there's going to be a CNN or I, maybe they'll keep the lights on, but I, I can't see nobody's watching it anymore. And that's why <laughs> zero. <laughs> but that's why that, that's why all these CNNs and the CBSs they jumped onto the podcasting bandwagon because they see. But they don't have see people. How are, but they don't have anyone really like the real famous podcasters, i.e., Joe Rogan, etc. They're getting 14, 15 million views per episode, and CNN. I'm sure their podcast is getting five thousand. Not even. Not even. Not, not nothing. Yeah. Like, I, I, in other words. It seems to me, like, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm certainly not, I'm not on social media. I don't really deal with that. I don't, I don't tend to, I don't want to speak out of school, but just from scooting around on YouTube and seeing like who's successful, these guys are coming out of nowhere and they have massive followings and they're going, and people, even in the last, I know this, even in the last year, 
cable subscriptions are down 8%, 9%, probably it, more. It, in the whole country. That's just what they're reporting. You, yeah. Yeah. And young people and stuff like that are just watching YouTube. They're watching podcasts. They're just, they're getting their information in little streams and snippets. And certainly you're going to find that CNN's not going to be able to afford to pay whomever, like these the $10 million yeah, they, a it's year. It's a massive layoffs, I think. Yeah. Recently. Oh, yeah. 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 It's but, happening. But what, <laughs> what I'm saying is that that door closing opens the door for people like myself who doesn't have those resources. And we're sitting here in a dressing room in Virginia Beach. I've got a little, tiny little microphone in an iPhone, and I'm recording a podcast yeah. with Chris Bodie. Yeah, and, and also, and I think the thing that I think people really like about podcasts, and Joe Rogan says this all the time, is that he's, it, it's not scripted. You don't have the higher-ups at CNN exactly. saying, you must yeah. say this yeah. exact same thing, and this is what we're going to talk about for four minutes, the and then there's going to be an ad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They just riff. They can use profanity. They can get tawdry if they want to. And it's become more democratic. And and that, I think that's what I heard with your first remarks about you finish a show. Let's say you finish your show here in Virginia, and people are leaving their reviews on wherever they re- leave their reviews. And and that is your that's the metric by how you are able to succeed. Yeah. And whether or not you get invited. Yeah. You're not look. You're not reliant on one person giving his blessing, Correct. his or her blessing on your product, you're more reliant on the people. Yeah. And that's been the great thing for me because we got in underneath the garage, okay. door closing. We got into the garage before- So you're riding the wave. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying if I was someone coming up now, if I put myself in my 35-year-old, 38-year-old person, I don't know what I would, how I would approach it. I don't, I would probably be like, all over social media trying to build following and that way. And I know there's got to be a way. I don't, I just well, don't people know. people are doing it. Yeah. I know people are yeah, doing it. Yeah, I'm just talking about with music, yeah. like with jazz music, like with instrumental music. I haven't, I, lately I haven't seen anyone bubble up that will cross over. I, I don't know that it's possible to rise to those levels. And if it is possible, then you, there is still a bit of that structure that you were talking about. But however, in every city, there's a performing arts place like we're playing tonight. Yeah. And I always just tell, especially my young singer friends and stuff like that, just hang in there. Hmm. We've seen like a major, just in jazz alone in the last four years, we've lost a lot of very influential, iconic, Wayne Shorter, Tony Bennett, Chikoria, Wallace Roney. Wallace Roney? I'm sorry. Who might? Clark Terry has passed. Lou Soloff has passed. Wallace Roney. He passed? Yeah. I interviewed him a couple of times. Rolf Smedvig passed. I didn't know that. A few years ago. No, I don't have connections. I'm almost positive. Up comes YouTube with his favorite. I'm almost positive. Yeah. Yeah, I think he he passed away the second month of COVID. Anyhow, we'll look at it so I don't. The biggest blunder of my life. (laughs) If that's the biggest one, then you've done pretty well. (laughs) Oh, Roy Hargrove, too. Who? Roy Hargrove. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And that's a big loss. I was a huge fan of him. And, yeah, he... All right. Yeah. This is a great segue for... I just just solicited questions on some Facebook groups. And uh, one person asked... Who are your inspirations? And you just mentioned Roy Hargrove. Well, he he wasn't my inspiration, but he's a guy that I really admired once I got 
to know him. I was an already an adult by then. And I would go down and see him at the Blue Note. And I f- think he had one of the most honest shows I've ever seen. He was really, he personified bebop in 1958. Even though he did some hip hoppy stuff with, with D'Angelo and stuff like that. He had a super recognizable sound. And I really admired his show because it he wasn't just coming out of academia. He wasn't just playing like super heady stuff. He sang. He wasn't the greatest singer, but he was so honest. And and he just, man, I just, I thought he was great. Fantastic. Yeah. But inspirations <laughs> when I was a kid, originally it was Doc Severinsen and then Miles beyond everyone else. And then, of course, all the... The great ones, Clifford, Woody, uh, Shaw, um, Freddie Hubbard, um, Lee Morgan, all the standard stuff, Clifford especially. Um, uh, and and then when I moved to New York, um, I heard Winton. And I, I really respect so much Winton's playing. But man, when he just, he like, I think he sort of re- worked his whole vocabulary out in front of the world. Like when he jumped onto the scene and he was 19 or 20, he had this brilliant technique and he played classical music and stuff like that. And then by the time, 20 years later, when he released that House of Tribes record, you could just tell like his whole, like everything, his content, what he plays was so staggeringly elevated. It wasn't just the flashy technique stuff. It was... It was a harmony vocabulary thing on a completely unique, different level. And that's when I really became, I was always a big fan of Winton, but that's when I really became a super admirer of it. I don't know anyone, maybe even, except for Clifford Brown and his height, that could just motor through Donna Lee, but to play it with the vocabulary that he plays with that isn't just like Clifford Brown. He's got a completely different articulation and the way he maneuvers through the chords with that incredible intellect and grace. Current day stuff, I mean, like Winton would be right there. I'm, 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 he, he's awesome. So by vocabulary, you're talking about technique? Uh, no, language through speaking. the chord changes. Okay. Yes, that's technique, but it's what he's stating, how he's yeah. outlining the chords, okay. how he's maneuvering through all the different parameters. And he's got, like, where Clifford would attack things much more scalarly. Scalarly? Yeah. <laughs> Winton has this, a lot of Louis Armstrong, Buddy Bolden in his playing. And he does, like, a lot of arpeggios, like, oh, old school stuff. Old school harmony. But then he has so much <clears throat> intellect from standard, like, modern day contemporary stuff. So he fluids them in before so like where Clifford never they Clifford was just always the language was the super hardcore bebop stuff and it was more scalar all the way across where Winton does these outlines the G minor chord without going to the A and the C he just goes G D G B flat D but that that's Louis Armstrong stuff and Clifford never do that Clifford go up that's scalar and, and Winton articulated, articulates both of those things, that old school and the way that he sits back in the time, a la Louis Armstrong, whereas Clifford sits right in the, Winton has incredible time. But th- this is what I really admired him. And Winton did all of this while he was being Winton. He burst onto the scene and was famous. And one of the reasons that I didn't make a jazz record in my 20s, and I think it was one of the best decisions I made because I saw Winton being like this 
glass ceiling. And I said, if I make a jazz record, no one's going to penetrate that glass ceiling of making a completely purest, standard, Stella by Starlight, Donna Lee jazz record as good as Winton's going to do. And certainly it's not going to be accepted to the general population. I got to figure out another path. And it took me however many, 15 years to make another record, to make a record, to to start. Because I, and I, I think I was right. Winton, for that straight ahead jazz trumpet thing, no one's come up. It's not Terrence Blanchard. No offense, Terrence is awesome. I mean, there are so many spectacular trumpet players today. Sean Jones, um, uh, Winton's going to have that glass ceiling. And so I, I just maneuvered over here, got involved with popular singers, and came back the back door, okay. so to speak, in jazz. So your heart is always in jazz, but you said, if I were to go this route... If I was going to release just a, a very standard tipping. Okay. Jazz record. You'd be just another guy trying to correct, and you, 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 you with never who's you, going to lose because Winton not only captivated all the Grammys and the pop culture, and then then he had the classical music and he had the great looks and the statesmanly presentation, and yeah, and if I would have done that and and I would have laid my cards out then, I don't think it would have been a smart move, and it would have wouldn't have been artistically honest, and therefore it, it's. That's what I like about Roy Hargrove because it's an honest presentation. He's not trying to do something that he doesn't believe in. To try to, because Winton does this, I should do that. <clears throat> no. So I waited and I did studio music and that sort of stuff and worked with it. Yeah. It worked out. Yeah, worked out. So, but you're not, it's not like you're compromising your principles. You're, if anything, you're, yeah. the opposite. And also, like when I, when I moved to New York, joining Paul Simon's band and sitting standing next to Mike Brecker for those eight years or whatever, how long I was in that band, you learn about a whole different thing. And also being around somebody like Paul early on, you learn how to rehearse a band, how to, and that's one thing that I really have a problem with. Like a lot of jazz guys, they think if they're lighting up a jazz club at night and everyone's going, this is awesome. Great. They think they can just roll into the studio the next day, put up some microphones and reduplicate that same thing. And it will be record making. That's not record making. Record making is a completely different thing. And it needs to be looked at like record making and not just jamming in a studio. And I think a lot of, I'm not, I don't want to name names, but I, I listen to a lot of jazz records. I'm going like, doesn't sound the most pleasing to me. <laughs> like it sounds like frenetic or too heady or too obtuse or I don't know, someone's drunk. I don't know. It just seems, but when you listen to Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, <clears throat> that's record making. Right. Because they had the best engineers, they had the best studio, they had the best microphones. They reserved their playing and they tabled the beautiful sound of John Coltrane and Miles, of course, and Bill Evans. And But they recorded it in such a way in that great classic studio in New York. When Miles would go on tour at the same time, he'd be playing this. Or whatever else. So what would be, but not on the records because it has to be cool so people can have it on in their house and listen okay. to it like this. But if they want to get into the incredible artistry and the uniqueness of their sound, yeah. like a jazzer would, then you it has space for you to get into it. But Miles's live records or all the outer stuff he did, Miles Smiles and Footprints and all that stuff, those records didn't sell like Kind of Blue and Sketches of Spain. Sketches of Spain and Kind of Blue are the least flashy, 
Okay. You could get you could go listen to Miles Davis live at the Plug Nickel, and he's playing probably better than he does on Kind of Blue. He's just crushing it. Okay. But it's never going to be the same because that's in a live club environment. So everything gets brought up in tempo. You bring everything up to get the visceral yeah. thing in the audience okay. to go like, man, that was killing. Yeah. But that same audience doesn't want, it's like classical music. Like if they go hear like Long or Joshua Bell play, the audience goes crazy when they when Joshua Bell plays like a Paganini unaccompanied technique just and the audience goes crazy and they stand up that same audience when they go home they don't put the stereo on and listen to Paganini they put the stereo on they listen to Chopin Nocturnes or Beethoven okay and because it gives them space and they can just go okay it's a different listening and it's a different impulse into your it's a different it's a different experience different okay. completely so, different experience. so you go to the jazz club and they're on fire but, but you have the energy of the crowd that's feeding. Yeah. The and then they, the somehow the jazzers, then they don't care about what microphones are playing in. They don't care about the reverbs and they don't care about the but studio. And the audience. They're, they're the, more tolerable. In a live situation. Yeah. yeah. But when we when you do it on a record, exactly. the audience absolutely cares about it. Of course. I, yes. I would say Al Schmidt is, is responsible for Diana Krall's career. And Tommy LaPuma, when Diana Krall came up, okay. is Diana Krall. Her records had that Al Schmidt who did my When I Fall In Love record, mixed and engineered that, had that same exact space for all those Diana Krall, all the Diana Krall's records until two years ago when he passed away. And he's as responsible for that sound. Her sound is her sound. And I think people resonate with the sound. That Paris live DVD and all that stuff. That's Alice Schmidt. I'm taking nothing away from her talent, but that's the way her voice sits in the space. You could have recorded that album with a different engineer you could have recorded her first few records with a different engineer the ones with the strings and all that stuff and i don't know if she would have the same and i would think she would probably say the same thing too because the 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 grace with which she was recorded and it brought out her grace is makes her career i think okay uh on that note somebody was asking about the the technology that you use compression eq both when you're live and recording. I, I think they just wanted oh, your live philosophy, your thoughts on how you go about that. Live, we, we carry a, um, a, a thing. It's a Neve uh, EQ, and, and it's paramount. Like, I wouldn't go into a live... I mean, I, I would if I had to. I've done it. Go into a live building and without my setup, my little Neve EQ strip. It's called a Shel Shelford? Shelford, yeah. And like a lot of a lot of people use it, like Kanye uses it. A lot of people use the Shelford. It's the best single one rack space EQ you can use. Now, when we're in the studio, I use classic Neve, like a, the board, like old Neves from the long time ago. But they remade that to be able to travel. You can't travel with those. And it's a compression and EQ. I don't really use the. I don't really use compression on my trumpet. Okay. And I don't really use compression on my trumpet in the studio. It's all, it's all just mixed. We use our own compression. Because once you compress something, it takes away the, by imagine shrink wrapping of dried fruit or something like that. It takes away the space around that. Once you compress something, it takes away the space. And pop singers need the compression 
because they they've got so much stuff going on around pop music today. They got so much. There's just so much information in the track with background vocals and everything. So they need to squash it in to get it the voice to sit up on top of the track, and that's how you get that full on frontal thing of pop music. Jazz musicians, you you create space by moving stuff away and and putting different reverb spaces around them, so the trumpet can sit there like it would in a room and hear that space. Mm-hmm. So you need so we painstakingly uh, work like the most high end reverb. My current engineer Alan Sides, um, who I've done my last five records with, is just a genius at that. So we use. We used to use capital reverb chambers, but we use EMT plates. He has a, an old AMS box, but it's old stuff and he maneuvers it beautifully. Yeah. But on the road, we use a, a Bercosti reverb and a Shelford uh, EQ strip. Okay, great. Somebody wants to know about how did you... <clears throat> oh, and the microphone. The microphone. The, in the studio, I only use for 20 years. I've used and I finally... Alan Sides, who owns Ocean Way, was such a gem. He sold me Ocean Way 2 and Ocean Way 3, or is it 3 and 4? They had 10 of them. But this is what Sinatra recorded in Stevie Wonder and Johnny Cash, and everyone recorded on this, this mic. So it's a Telefunken uh, 251. It's the big kind of tubular thing. And Miles used it on, I want to say he used it on Sketches of Spain. He used a 67 tele he used a neumann 67 on kind of blue but on sketches of spain the one that's hanging down that he plays underneath it that's that one the two telefunken 251 so i now i have two of them and alan was so gracious to sold them to me but they just they just sit in the closet until i to record a record and break them out and play how often do you record release albums these days it's been 10 years really yeah wow yeah this the last record i made was 13 and now it comes out <laughs> This year in October, the volume one comes out in October. But we were supposed to record the record right when the pandemic started. Mm. Uh, and so there's been, been a delay in that. And then, so my, I was transitioning from Columbia Records to, so they had to do contracts. That takes a while and all that stuff. Yeah, so we've had a little five-year break or 10-year break. But usually, you should do a record. I used to record a record every year and a half when we were starting to get it going, but then the touring thing takes over. And you see, that's what I love about this new record is we call it volume one because it's my first record for Blue Note. And it's it's a gigantic reset. I turned 60, a lot of stuff. So we call it volume one for that stuff. Okay. I I, I just wrote down some notes on, on the questions that were asked. Apologies for people mm-hmm. who might be listening. And if I'm asking a question, I'm not giving you credit. I apologize, but someone uh, made, made a note to say that he really enjoyed Deborah's theme. Mm-hmm. And he said he's been playing trumpet for 69 years and it, it just inspires him. Yeah. Again, that particular um, song and then so many of uh, my early stuff, uh, Emmanuel, um, Someone to Watch Over Me, all that's... Jeremy Lubbock, yes, I'm playing the melody, pensive or whatever, but the way that Jeremy's altering the, the chords through the orchestra, and we lost Jeremy a couple of years ago, and Jeremy Lubbock was one of the greatest arrangers ever. And 
I don't have a hit song that's been on the radio, but my Deborah's theme, I'm sorry, Emmanuel is a hit song, my hit song. And that's really, yes, I played the melody, but it's the decision to go to Jeremy and say, make this into a violin duet and the way he did all that. And I got to give him credit because that Deborah's theme is just me and the orchestra. And it's not a long piece. It's a three minute or something like that. And it opens Italia. But the way that Jeremy gets those harmonies to come out and we recorded it in London at Air Studios with the London Symphony and it's very posh. So I'm happy to have worked with him. He was a brilliant artist. Somebody wants to know about your daily routine, maintenance of your chops, your skills while you're on the road. I know that you studied with Bill Adam, who's mm -hmm. got a very famous routine. Can you shed some light on that? I do some version of that, maybe more so now I... Uh, I, I still do the long tones and the Clarks. And then I d just try to like work on articulation. And I certainly during the pandemic, I was back to college days practicing eight hours a day. There's nothing else to do except go to the gym and, and practice the trumpet. But, but now we travel so much and all that stuff. And, but I practice the fundamentals at least for an hour, an hour and a half, something like that. And then get right into trying to make my vocabulary better through chord changes and through content and whipping around, whether it's like analyzing other people's solos or practicing a particular phrase. And just when you get older, <laughs> when you get older on the trumpet, it doesn't, it's not very kind to you. So you got to make sure that your sound is always as rich as it can be. And also I play in a trumpet that's almost a hundred years old, 85 years old. So it, it's fallen apart and it's not that it's a very not, friendly instrument to get around on but it has the killer sound so it's technically i could get like another trump a modern day trumpet and just fly on it so much easier like articulation but you put it on a microphone and nothing it sounds like that martin and so i, I just during the pandemic i tried so many different trumpets and they're all excellent but they're just they don't sound like me and uh, especially when you go on a microphone like i remember <clears throat> Uh, one particular new model trumpet, and I played it for my uh, manager our, one of our first days back when we got back for a rehearsal at Central Park. And I played it for him in my apartment. He goes, man, that trumpet sounds amazing. And we got to rehearsal with the band, and we just I just played like one note, and the band was like... What? Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. It's super... The way you sound in a room is not the way that a trumpet grabs a microphone popular music or an opera, the way an opera singer sings when they stand at the Met and they launch their voice, they're, they're trying to project their voice to the back of the, the thing. They have so much force and so much power, but who's the most identifiable opera singer in the world? Bocelli. Yeah. And he sings on a microphone with this intimacy and his voice grabs the microphone. If he was singing in the exact way that all the other opera singers were, like with all that wind and fat power and stuff like that, no one would, it wouldn't translate. He sings the way Sinatra does with that intimacy, the way Sinatra sings a ballad, but he's singing opera. He's delivering, he's spinning the sound up with all that grace and the, and the whole elasticity of his voice, and, but he's not shouting it. And so a lot of trumpet players, they don't, that's what Miles had. My Miles on a microphone, man, you just harm a mute. And blah, 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 blah. He just had that, but Miles played a Martin. <laughs> Somebody wants to know, do you feel guilty about tripling the price of Martin committees? 
Oh God! <laughs> I, I, in, in fairness, the one that I play, the Martin that I've had maybe some impact on the price. You can't find them. The Martin Committee handcraft large bore. Okay. You can find a Martin Committee handcraft. Probably in the last twenty years, I've run across two. Really? And I bought both of them. Okay. I think I bought both of them. No, I bought. I've run across one, and I bought that. And I bought one medium bore, and I bought, and I have another Martin, another Martin large bore, but it's not a handcraft. But you just can't find them. They don't exist. You just can't. They're just, they don't, Martin Committee handcraft large bore, if anyone's listening and wants to sell me one, <laughs> let me know. But I just haven't, in the minute they come up on eBay, I get like a ton of notifications. Hey, Chris, you want to buy this? Blah, blah, blah. But I just haven't. And the one that I bought, Josh Landris sold it to me. And it's, it's fantastic. And it's just like two serial places away from mine. But they were all done right. The handcraft large bores were all done like something like 1939, 1940, 1941, something like that. In that little thing. And they were busy making medium bores. Most guys didn't want to play large bores. They're too hard to play. This has been a blast, man. Okay. I'm glad that we were able to hook up again. Okay. And this time it's 15 minutes away from my house versus five hours from Seoul, Korea. Jeez. And here we are meeting up in Virginia of all places. And what other, who else do you interview for the podcast? Is it all trumpet players or? This, is, this one is called Trumpet Dynamics. Uh -huh. So it's all trumpet. I do repurpose some of the content for other purposes. I have another one that is more life, spirituality, mm -hmm. purpose filled mm -hmm. type of thing. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll take a snippet off of an episode and play it on there yeah. if it's relevant but this one is pure trumpet for trumpet players by a trumpet player interviewing trumpet players i've had manny loriano Vinny shashelsky sergey nakaryakov oh he's fantastic they're, wow and they're all great and they're all very down to earth and all you have to do is just send them a message on facebook you want to do an interview sure yeah boy i did i did one zoom call with sergey during the pandemic and there were and there were a couple other trumpet players on the thing we were all just can you just play something for us <laughs> and he just whipped out the horn man what a he's got to be the greatest classical maybe among the as far as virtuosic technical i don't think he can be beat yeah maybe equaled in some ways but i don't think anybody can, yeah. can top him that cello stuff that he does on the flugelhorn is oh, like it's oh my god and it's a bummer that he doesn't come to the States that much. Does he at all? I, it, it's a very rare. Yeah. People like him, so a lot of those Europeans, they, they found their niche. They, yeah. They don't really have a reason to come here. Yeah. I, I don't, and I don't know, honestly, if the demand would really be there. Yeah. I think the markets over there, they're more appreciative of his brand of music. Yeah. Where here, I don't know that he could succeed here if he was based here. Even with that skill. Yeah. Even with that skill set. And if he did, he would be like, God bless his soul, but Alan Vizzuti, he can't. He can't but Alison Balsam is in England. Uh, she's, a, she's in LA now, but yeah. Oh, she's in LA. She, she's one of the few that can fill a concert hall. Yeah. America. She married the super famous movie director that did 1914 and Sam Mendoza. Sam? Do you, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know? <laughs> yeah. 
And so he won all the Academy Awards. He's like a big shot. Oh. She came to my she came to my show and we when I was playing with Streisand, she came to my show in London, and we were talking. And I said, like we were talking about like practicing. And she goes, Oh yeah, I usually just take out the horn a couple of weeks before I start a tour. I'm like, Wait, what? You play like that, and you like take a few weeks off, and then you just take it out and like what? She is a something else. Man. She's great, freak, She's a great. real talent. And there's that uh, Till what um, Till Sing, uh, uh Tina thing Helseth. Yeah, she's in Norway, I believe. Yeah, she's wonderful. She's wonderful too. I've yeah. heard people say they would put her over Allison. Yeah, yeah. As far as the musicality, yeah. the nuance in the music. Yeah, but everybody has their preferences, sure, and their tastes, yeah. and it really doesn't matter at the end. Exactly. The best players don't argue over yes. who's the best players. <laughs> yeah. Nadal and Djokovic don't argue over who plays tennis. Yes. John Borg's still alive. <laughs> they, they all know it. McEnroe. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yes, sir. Yes, that was a wonderful interview. Uh, and thanks again to Chris Bodie for being so generous with his time. And um, again, this is why I love doing podcasts is because I get to meet people that I wouldn't ordinarily get to meet. And I also just feel privileged and honored. And um, and I also am just privileged to be somewhat of a conduit between some of these great players of our time and you all who are listening. It's a real, it's just a real thrill for me. So I, I wanted to take a couple of minutes and share my own observations about Chris Bodie as a trumpeter. And I'm just going to start this out by saying that Chris is an absolute beast on the trumpet. You heard him in this interview talking about Miles Davis, the difference between a, um, a recording studio sound or the way that you're going to approach a recording session versus how you're going to approach a, um, uh, a live concert setting. And I've heard people say that like Chris Bodie is the Kenny G of the trumpet, things like that. Just they're, they're not really respectful, and they're not trying to be respectful. And I have to take issue with people like that. I think that that is just very, it's, it's really impolite, to be honest with you, to say such things, because you don't know the man as he really is as a trumpeter. The man is one of the great players of our time, and that was confirmed to me last night when I saw his show. He is probably the most fearless trumpeter I have ever seen. He may not be the most technically sound or the most uh, virtuosic player on the planet, but I don't know that I've ever seen someone who is as fearless as Chris Bode, uh playing a double G as the, uh, like the, the headlining act of the evening in a, a theater car- that, that's holding 2,000 attendees who have paid really good money to see him play. And he just tore it up. Go, goes up an octave from a, a G on top of the staff up to a, a, a double G. Like it was nothing. That takes some real cojones. And I don't care who you are, you have to have that trumpet player's mindset of, I'm going to crush this. Say what you will about the man, and you may think that his recordings are garbage, you may think that they're boring. Fine. You haven't seen him in person. The man can play. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Another observation that I had about my uh, conversation with him, he was talking about 
this, uh, the, like the garage door that was closing on the old way of succeeding in the music business. And I think what he was talking about is succeeding, meaning that there's a certain threshold of popularity so that you can get in, uh, in the good graces of a well-known producer or a, a studio executive who can then uh, take the reins and you know, take, take you where you want to go as, as far as being um, popular, as far as being uh, well-known to the masses. Of course, having the name recognition to sell uh, albums and merchandise, whatever the case may be. His comments were along the lines of, those days are over. And quite frankly, I don't know that those days will ever come back. And that's just my opinion. It's one man's opinion, and it's not a very well-founded opinion. I'll be the first to admit it. I'm not the the person that I would ask for on, on this matter. I'm just sharing what is on my mind. But I don't think that those days will ever come back. We had a period of time that was... I don't know, maybe a hundred years, that was more or less the exception as far as being able to uh, have, have a certain standard or a certain level or a certain threshold of success as a musician. And I think that this internet and the way that music is disseminated these days in some ways is bringing musicians back to reality. And that is my opinion. Now, the common bond between this new music economy and the old music economy that Chris was referring to, where he got his start and where he got his uh, notoriety, he made a name for himself, and he's kind of riding that wave, as we spoke about in the interview, of success and that he's able to continue to tour and do really well for himself. The common bond between the two eras is you just have to be a a kick-ass musician. And not only that, but you have to be a great person, and you have to know how to work a crowd. You're not going to get in good, uh, I'm saying this in the present tense, back in the day, let's just go back 20 years, because that's what Chris was talking about. 20 years ago, you would never get your foot in the door at some of these big-name record labels if you didn't know how to work a crowd, if you didn't know how to uh, have rapport with people listening how to uh, touch people at a very deep level that only music can touch them. If you don't know how to do that, then you don't have a snowball's chance in hell of even having an introduction to someone who is the person who grinds the coffee for the person who gets the coffee for the assistant to the assistant to the, the executive assistant to the the decision maker. You see where I'm going with this. If you didn't have those basic people skills and you didn't have those really, really exceptional musical abilities, you were never going to have a chance anyway. And in my opinion, if you don't have those two things, then you're not going to succeed in today's economy. Now, the means by which you gain that popularity and that notoriety, as we said in the interview, are more democratic. It's more of the people have a say, the common person, the ticket holders have more of a say as to whether or not someone like Chris Chris Bodie gets booked again at the Sandler Center in Virginia Beach, Virginia. <clears throat> if, if enough people leave positive reviews at, at the Sandler Center, then they're going to want him back. 
And it's just that simple. So in, in some ways, there is more of that have a say in a person's success, whether they're going to sink or swim. It, they have to appeal to the masses more so than, than back in the day where if you got in good with one person or maybe a, maybe a very small group of people, then they could more or less ensure that you would have a certain measure of success as long as you did your job. And as long as you continued to do, make your music very well and continued to uh, uh, work the crowd and get that rapport and that intimacy with your, with your audience worldwide or nationwide, wherever the, whatever the case may be, as long as you keep doing that, then that small group of executives would more or less ensure that you're able to maintain that threshold of success. Now, if you do something stupid where you're going to uh, tarnish your reputation, well, they can't help you with that. But as long as you do your job, as long as you do what's expected of you, you know, it was, it w- I think it, maybe it was more predictable. And I don't know that I was able to really ask that of Chris in that detail or in those specific words. But based on what he said, I think he would agree with that. So that's really all that was on my mind based on um, my conversation with Chris. And I got to see Chris when I met him in Korea eight years ago. I, I, I mean, I, I saw his show right after we spoke uh, for, the, for our podcast interview. Sadly, I don't have that. I wish that I had it. And I have shot myself or wanted to shoot myself so many times because of some of the interviews that I've lost over the years. Um, I, 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 all I can say is that administrative, administrative details are not my strong suit when it comes to podcasting. And I've been through a lot of things in the intervening time. I've moved a lot. I've been through, gone through a lot of life changes. So sadly, uh, so, some of the great stuff that I was able to produce in my early days simply don't exist anymore. And if you have, if you happen to come across a podcast called Outside the Music Box, hosted by James Newcomb with Chris Bodie, then let me know. And I want I, I will I will compensate you for it. I'll just leave it at that. Send me an email if you happen to find it, and I will make sure that you are well rewarded. Because I'd love to have that. But it's really neither here nor there. Anything that happened in 2015 may as well have happened in 2015 uh, BC, you know. It, it just doesn't really, things the Things that are eight years old these days are not really relevant. That's just the nature of the beast. So if you're still here, I really appreciate you sticking it all the way th- through the very end. I was really thrilled to be able to hook up with Chris Bodie and share the interview with you. And I appreciate you guys pressing play and uh, listening all the way to the end. If you have any comments or if you have any questions, or if you just want to say hello, identify yourself as a listener of the show, I would love to hear from you. It does get a bit lonely recording these podcasts all by myself and not really being able to interact with listeners. So I I would love to hear from you. My email is james at jamesdnewcomb.com. Just send an email. I will respond and let me know how you like the show. If you've got any questions, critiques, suggestions, maybe guests that I should reach out to, then uh, please, by all means, reach out. Thanks for listening, and we'll uh, catch you next time. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. 
For more captivating episodes and exclusive content, visit our official website at trumpetdynamics.com. You can dive deeper into the interviews, discover additional resources, and connect with your fellow trumpeters. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and even leave a rating and review. It really helps with the visibility of the show. Until we meet again, may your fingers be fluid, your breath unimpeded, and your chops ever fresh. Play hard, 